Welcome to the Happy Home Birth Podcast, your source for positive natural childbirth stories and your community of support, education, and encouragement in all things home birth and motherhood. What do obstetricians have to say about home birth? Well, there's one we're speaking to today who certainly has some opinions that may surprise you in the best way. Hey there, happy home birthers, and welcome to episode 190 of the Happy Home Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Fusco, and today we're speaking to the incredible Dr. Stu Fishbein, a home birth attending obstetrician, founder of Reteach Breach, and one of the two lovely co-hosts from the ever-inspiring podcast, Birthing Instincts. In this conversational episode, Dr. Stu, as usual, holds nothing back and shares his opinions regarding the current state of the medical oligarchy and how the last two years of pandemic chaos have exposed the realities that have existed for a long time, how this encroaches on midwives, mothers, and people as a whole, and we discuss the responsibility that each one of us can choose to take in regards to our own health and our own birth. He shares the massive shifts in perspective that he's had over his career in terms of how maternity care should be managed, or better yet, left alone. And he unabashedly shares his thoughts on COVID, the vaccine, and more. Knowing my audience, many of you will be nodding your heads in agreement from start to finish. If that's not the case, please remember that you are 5,000% entitled to your own opinion and no hard feelings either way. If you've listened to the Birthing Instincts podcast, you know that Dr. Stu and Bliss are perfectly comfortable with amicable disagreement. Also, just a heads up, there are a few aptly used expletives, so be prepared for any small ears. Um, and yeah, get ready for a super enjoyable episode. We had a blast talking. Let's get to it right now. Please remember that the opinions of my guests may not necessarily reflect my own and vice versa. And this show is not medical advice. It's an educational tool. So continue to take empowered responsibility for your health and your family. So you asked how my conference was. It was, it was I love them. I love hanging around with midwives and having conversations. And especially because I'm learning that more and more midwives are more and more knowledgeable and so it's more of a reaffirmation for them than it is basic training. Right. 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 Like actually skills, they already have a decent amount of the knowledge of the skills. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Well, because they have a curiosity about this because they, they want to care for their clients and they know that at some point in the future, they're going to have a surprise breach or something like that. And, and they want to know what to do. So they've looked into it and they've, you know, they looked into Breach Without Borders and my friends, Rick and David, and and uh, they they want this education. And, I, and I'm willing to bet that young medical students and residents want it too, but they are blocked from getting it by their obtuse administrators. Um, so, yeah, I, I would ask the question. I loved doing these. I love doing this one. I love doing them all. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And, you know, I know that you are a longtime advocate for birth choices, as you say at the beginning of the Birthing Instincts podcast. And I guess in relation to that, in this fact that, you know, this is information that people want, probably med students want it, midwives want it. But what have you noticed are some of the main factors that kind of get in the way of them being able to access this? 
Well, it gets into the it gets into a lot of psychology that gets in the way. And some of it is confirmation bias, and some of it is cognitive dissonance. Some of it is stage one thinking, and some of it is just the long habit of not thinking something wrong, giving it the superficial appearance of being right, and just doing things the way that your your ancestor did, did them without ever questioning. Mm -hmm. I was always a questioner from when I was a little kid. I would also, I'd be that annoying little kid that would go, well, why, why? And then, you know, then how many times did I hear from my parents because I said so, right? you know, and that, that doesn't really sit well with a kid with curiosity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know that that's what's shaped me today, but I do know that simple things that like, why does the baby go to the warmer? Why do we clamp the umbilical cord right away? Why does a woman have to pee in a cup when she shows up at the hospital in labor? You know, these, these are questions that, that pop into my head um, that really don't have an answer. They just do them because routinely they do them or there's a monetary advantage to doing them or there's some other motivation behind it. But the, the, the what I would call the grunts, and I mean that respectfully, the people that are actually doing the work, um, don't often have a say anymore in in having any individualization of care. It's all algorithmic. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lack of intellectual curiosity. It gets beaten out of you in the eight years of medical school and residency. Um, there's a lot of conformity. Then you come out and you're no longer an independent physician anymore. You come out and you generally you get a job working for some major corporation. In Southern California, it'd be like Kaiser, or I don't know what it is in your state. But um, so then even then you are bound by the policies and procedures and formulary that are given to you by that company. And you can't go outside of that, otherwise risking losing your Christmas bonus or even worse, your, you know, your job. So people just keep their head down. They're more sheep than shepherd. I would say that, you know, 50 years ago, doctors were more shepherd than sheep. Some of them were quite crappy doctors and they were arrogant as all get out, but at least they took charge of, uh, what they were doing it wasn't always right i mean i look back at some of the things that i used to do earlier in my training or in my in my practice and i kind of want to hit myself you know for taking babies from their mothers and holding them up and then putting them in the warmer that sort of thing or or giving women shots to dry up their breast milk so they could use similac or enthamyl formula because it was promoted by the drug reps in our office and we thought it was great. And then they had it actually on the order sheets at Cedars, they actually had a box to check pre-printed order to give them the shot to dry up their breast milk. These are, these are crazy, crazy, crazy things that we did. And we did it, I did it like what everybody else does it because that's what everybody did. And still I began to start questioning things. And then I realized that pretty much everything the hospital does isn't for the benefit of the woman. And then I began to see that a lot of it was done for either idiotic reasons, nefarious reasons, um, but it really wasn't done to benefit the, the actual patient mm -hmm. or her baby. Yep. And it sounds like when you're saying that, it kind of reminds me of how it's not just the OBs that are kind of locked. It sounds like, you know, we've all sort of lost the ability to question and to be curious about things. So we've got OBs who are, you know, well, I learned it in school. And so that's what I'm doing. And then midwives are also locked in, in the sense that if they go outside of what they're supposed to do, they can get in trouble too. And then mothers are 
believing many times, well, you know, these are authority figures, you know, this, my care provider is my authority figure. They're over me. So who am I to ask questions? It seems well, midwife, like yeah, midwives don't even have to go out of, uh, out of their box to get in trouble because right. doc doctors tend to have be pre have preconceived notions that midwives are witches and don't really know anything and are dangerous. And they'll use that as an excuse to persecute them in communities or make it harder for them in communities or in their states. Um, not because they have bad outcomes, but ultimately probably the opposite because they have good outcomes and their competition. I happen to be a lightning rod for these sorts of um, letters that I get from midwives. Like, you know, the doctors in my community are, are making it really hard for me or they're, they've written letters to the local nursing board um, accusing me of things that aren't true. And I, I'm just little and I don't have uh, money for a lawyer. And, and, you know, they get crushed. And it's, it's, this is a, the nature of business uh, forever. You just wouldn't think it would happen on such a little level. But, it, but there is a lot of ego and pettiness that goes on in, uh, in, in our system. So, yeah, there is, there is that. Um, and there also is the fact that, that many midwives are trained, especially certified nurse midwives, are trained in the medical system and therefore, you know, be, it's, it's easier to become a cog in the wheel than it is to be, you know, a wheel out of alignment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your hands are tied a, a lot of the time. It's like, okay, well, am I going to keep my job or am I going to, you know, serve the woman? Yeah. It's an interesting thing. When you see hospital systems hiring midwives or hiring doulas to support women in labor, you have to wonder, um, you know, to who does their fiduciary duty lie and what is the conflict of interest there? Because ultimately a doula that works for the hospital is supposed to be representing the woman, but if she represents the woman to the detriment of hospital policy, she's not likely to have a job for very long. Mm -hmm. So if you just take a step back and you look at the system and you can see it, and and if you haven't seen it before, you certainly have seen it in the last two years with the, the, the lies and the... Uh, and the, I wouldn't even, you know, I, people call misinformation. It's not misinformation. It's, it's a lie. Right. Uh, when they tell you that the vaccine is safe and effective and that it's safe in pregnant women. And when you, my organization comes out and says, not only is it safe and effective before there was any data, there still is no data on pregnant women. And if there's any, it's not good. But they also put out an edict that said, if you counsel people, for this vaccine and your client chooses not to take the vaccine then you must have counseled them wrong this is what this is what the american college of OBGYN is saying about this vaccine and also about like the tdap shot which is the tetanus diphtheria and pertussis shot um they say these things i don't know who these people are they're not my friends <laughs> i wouldn't want to have a beer with them uh, I, I don't know how they can all in agreement. You, you sort of watch the action of like the ACIP committee for, for the FDA, which is the something uh, immune practices committee that, that approves these vaccines. And they have these hearings and you listen to the hearings and people are complaining about this is dangerous in children and this shouldn't be done in children and children don't need it and children don't die. And then they vote 17 to one or something like that to give it to children. It's a, it, these are pre- not preconceived it's a predetermined they're predetermined conclusions and they put on a show 
Well, what's so hard about that is understanding the the buy-in of, I mean, and I guess, you know, it, it is incentivized, but like the buy-in across the board for doctors to be like, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense when it's like, well, how, how does it, how would it make sense for every single human to agree? How would that make sense that every person would say yes to something? Well, it's dystopian to, right. to believe that. I mean, one of the basic tenets of medical ethics is that given the same information, it was, it's not reasonable to assume that two people will come to the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we're being told that if we didn't, if we counsel them and they don't choose to follow that counseling, that, that we must have done something wrong. Yep. And I feel like that plays exactly into birth as well. Our decisions of how to give birth, where to give birth, you know, it's from the mainstream. It's like, well, duh, like you have to give birth in a hospital and you have to do it the exact way that we say to do it or or else what? Like you're an idiot. So what? Well, no, or else your baby will be in trouble. Your baby will. Yeah, your baby will die or. Or, or we'll call child protective services on you, that sort of thing. Right. I mean, we are, we are, we started out going really down this dark hole, and I want to, I want to hopefully bring the conversation back <laughs> out to the, how the, the how wonderful birth is and how how normal it is, and for most women, don't need this this highly medicalized system that we have created, which is, as I said earlier, if you think about things that happen to you during your prenatal care or during your labor and delivery experience, how many of those things are happening for your benefit as the woman versus the benefit of the nurse or the hospital or your doctor's office or what, or the laboratory or whatever else? Because from the moment you get in the car to drive to the hospital to the moment you put your baby in the car seat to drive home, everything that's done to you is antithetical to nature's design. Mm -hmm. Nature designs a woman like any other mammal to go into labor in a safe, quiet, and unobserved space and be able to eat or drink if they want to, certainly be able to move, be undisturbed, be without fear or anxiety. Mammals don't labor well when there's a predator approaching or little kids are running around the bedroom when the dog is under the bed in labor or something like that. You, And then we have the respect I, from when I was a little kid. If there was an animal in labor, uh, a pet in labor, we were told, you know, leave Ruffy alone. Mm -hmm. Don't bother her. Stay away from it. Don't go in that room. Stay out of there. We were told to do that about our dogs. But when as humans, it's how many times can we interrupt her in labor by making her get in a car and drive someplace and then, and then making her, you know, pee in a cup and put on a hospital gown and get strapped down in a bed on monitors and have an IV stuck in her arm and have her ask the ton of questions that don't make any sense for a woman that's in labor like how many stairs do you have in your house or you know what did your grandmother die from or what kind of tattoos do you have or whatever who cares and then they have to sign documents while they're contracting every three minutes as if those documents carry any legal weight at all mm. you know informed consent uh power of attorney all those documents that you sign when you go to the hospital but you can't get admitted until you sign all those documents and answer all those questions so then you can get a wristband so then you can be told to get into a hospital gown and be disempowered even further because you can't even wear your own jammies um or nothing if you want to wear nothing as a lot most laboring women are very happy wearing maybe just a top but nothing underneath and and then you you know you put on a monitor and you're constantly interrupted and and you have people sitting around staring at you 
and uh, and the, and we expect that this is all for the benefit of the woman, and none of it is. Right. Um, the midwives have it, you know, the midwife model. Not all midwives follow the midwife model, but the midwife model is what we call it. is is so much better. It it treats pregnancy as a normal event that occasionally goes awry and accepts uncertainty, whereas the medical model treats um, uh, pregnancy as an illness and is filled with fear. Mm-hmm. And mammals don't labor well when they're fearful. Yep. And I think that another issue is just the the medical model. It's like the sanitization of everything goes right. If you're here, everything will go right and everything is fine. And we know that that's just not reality. It doesn't just being the mere being in a hospital doesn't guarantee success. It doesn't guarantee perfect outcomes. So, but it seems like that is oftentimes the view of give birth here, you'll be fine. Give birth somewhere else, everybody's gonna suffer. Well, first of all, those people that say that don't understand birth. Mm -hmm. They may be experts, but as we've learned in the past two years from the experts on television telling us things, experts generally don't know anything. Uh, They certainly shouldn't be making policy. Mm -hmm. Um, But they, they, they say those things without realizing that the, that their model has taken women from a 5% C-section rate to a 30% C-section rate. Their model has not decreased the rate of cerebral palsy or neonatal death. Um, their model has increased the satisfaction, excuse me, the dissatisfaction of women in labor. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I could open a whole can of worms and, and I don't think I want to go off on a tangent on that, but... <clears throat> their model isn't safe. And what, what people don't understand is that when somebody needs a quote, emergency, unquote, C-section, which by the way, is rarely an emergency. People will tell me they had an emergency C-section. I'll ask them the question. Well, from the dis- from the moment they made the decision to have a C-section till when they actually did the C-section, how long was that? And they'll say, oh, you know, 45 minutes, an hour. And I'll go, so that was not an emergency C-section, just so you know. An emergency C-section takes place in a matter of 10, 15 minutes. Um, but they they don't understand that their own policies lead to the sudden and rapid deterioration of the fetal status. When you starve a woman, when you immobilize a woman, when you give a woman an epidural, you disconnect her from her baby hormonally. Um, when you add Pitocin on top of that, and now the baby's no longer communicating to its mother or getting its mother's own oxytocin and other hormones, the baby will sometimes begin to deteriorate. And then they'll say, see, your baby's not tolerating labor. Thank God we were able to do a C-section for you and save your baby. What would you have done if this had happened at home? Not understanding that this thing almost never happens at home because we don't meddle with the system. When things begin to go wrong at home, you can generally see them coming from a long way. And then if you have to transport, you can transport with plenty of time. We don't see the rapid deterioration, except on rare occasions where you have a significant event like an abruption of the placenta or cord prolapse or something, which are are very rare events and not a reason to do everything in the hospital. As Bliss likes to say, you know, if you choked on a piece of food at some point in your life, would you want to eat all your meals in the emergency room just in case? Right. No, you wouldn't. Yeah. And we have conditioned American women and most Western countries have conditioned their women to believe that that uh, 
birth, we've disempowered them and made them believe that their bodies don't function well and that birth needs to be done because it's a medical problem in a hospital setting. It's the only thing we go to the hospital for, for wellness mm -hmm. that I can think of. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I'd like to hear how you came to this conclusion. If you're, you know, mentioning while I started off a certain way, you were, you were practicing rather normally inside of the hospital. <laughs> how did you come to the conclusion? That, oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, normally is in the eyes of the beholder. Um, right. <laughs> um, well, I tell the story a lot, and and I can't pin it down to any one event. Um, I think my journey began before. I mean, I like I said before, I was a questioner even when I was a little kid. But in 1986, uh, I finished my residency. I took three months off, and I traveled around the world. It was a really interesting time um, to do that. You could. You could, I, I bought a plane ticket on TWA and Singapore Airlines, and you could fly east to west. And as long as you flow east to west, the toll ticket was $2,000. Wow. So I could fly around the world for $2,000. And uh, that's, an, that's another side story. But while I was on that trip, I read a book called Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And it changed, I think it's one of those books that really changed my way of looking at things um it's a sentinel event i would say or a sliding door moment or whatever you want to call it and i began to look at things a little differently but i still came out came back and began to practice as i had been trained um doing the things that i talk about very medicalized birth writing prescriptions for birth control pills as if they were candy mm -hmm. not knowing what i know now about the business of birth control and ricky lake and abby epstein's movie um that everyone should watch uh, but I was approached by midwives early in my career to take their clients as a, as their transports. And, you know, in those days, it was a different kind of practice. You didn't come out and get a job. You would build your practice from scratch and you only made money if you were working. So I covered a lot of free clinics and emergency rooms. And I was, I, I was, I welcomed taking their clients, not because I thought home birth was a good idea. I thought it was stupid, uh, like everybody else, but because I was a mercenary and I wanted to make money. And I thought that this was a great way to make money, but it turned out to be a gateway to something much, much better in that I began to see that these women were not stupid. They were actually better educated than any of my own clients. And the midwives uh, were fascinating to me. And we would, we'd have lots of time to sit around labor and delivery while we're waiting and began talking to them. And they began inviting uh, me to their meetings. I began going. I began to see another way of doing things for normal, healthy women, which I didn't know of. And it turns out that that OB residents are well-trained to take care of about 15% of people who, who might have significant medical problems, but they're in charge of the 100% of women who are pregnant when 85% of them they know very little about, which is the ones that don't need anything done. Mm -hmm. So everybody gets something done and everybody gets seeds of doubt planted in them from the moment they come in. Oh, you're over 35. Oh, your husband's really a big man or, you know, your hips are really small. And they just start throwing out these little darts. What they're doing is they're just projecting their own anxieties and own fears onto the women that they care for. And I was guilty of doing that as well, because that's how you're trained. But I began to see a different way. And the midwife way was just calm. And, you know, uh, my friend Alex, you know, said, well, we're at a birth, we're like ninja, ninja lifeguards. And I thought about that. It's like, yeah, you really don't intervene or do anything. You're, you're quietly around doing nothing, except if there's a riptide that suddenly comes in, then you jump in. Um, whereas in the doctor world, you know, we don't even see the patients in labor for the most part. Uh, the nurses who are strangers to the women take care of them. So the women are being taken care of by someone they don't know, which can't really be comforting. And 
then over the over the hours they take care of and they get to know the nurse better and they start to really like their nurse and then oops seven o'clock rolls around and it's change of shift and then they get it somebody else and so this is not i began to see the system completely wrong it was completely antithetical to what as i said earlier nature's designs and um so i began to incorporate that into my practice i hired two cnms Wow. to work in a hospital model collaborative practice and we had really good results out in ventura county but we were never accepted in the community we were always um picked on differently there's a hierarchy of being picked on and we've all seen that currently now too you know if you belong to a certain political party you can get away with anything if you're the other party you can't if you're vaccinated you can do this if you're unvaccinated you're you're just a piece of shit sorry <laughs> <laughs> So, no, that's all turning around now in that life, too. But it turned around for me back then. And I began to figure out that that the, everything that I had been doing was wrong. Um, and we had really good results. But we eventually got to the point where they decided they were going to make it impossible for us to stay in the hospital. And it's not because we had bad outcomes. Matter of fact, we had great outcomes. It's because we didn't make friends Yep. with the other departments the pediatric department didn't like us because our clients wanted to go home four hours after they gave birth or they didn't want hepatitis vaccine and that upset the pediatricians or um, and the anesthesiologist department didn't like us because most of our clients guess what they didn't want an epidural so there was no advantage for them uh, to be in the hospital and then the OBs didn't like us just because you know partly I think it's my personality you know, I, I don't abide stupid well, mm -hmm. and that's a bit of an arrogance that I might have. Um, I don't know that it's not undeserved, but um, the, I watched them do unbelievably stupid things. I watched the people who supposedly ran the department there. They, they would vote for each other. So every two years, it would be one of their same guys, which is switch places. And it was all about protecting themselves. Mm -hmm. They, they they didn't peer review themselves for the same things they peer reviewed our, our, our group for. Right. If my midwife got a broken clavicle, we got peer reviewed. If they got a broken clavicle, they didn't get peer reviewed. Mm -hmm. If uh, you know, I got peer reviewed one time for wearing the wrong scrubs, you know, I came from Cedars and Cedars scrubs and I did a delivery and somebody bothered to write me up for that. Meanwhile, the chairman of the department did a C-section on a woman who had two vaginal births on her third baby. She was breached. She did a C-section for breach, but forgot to check her in the pre-op area and, Turns out the baby wasn't breech, and they did an unnecessary C-section for a vertex baby, and not a peep in our department about any sort of reprimand for that kind of thing. And that's actually malpractice. That's negligence. That's that's actionable, um, and that doesn't get reviewed. But me in in the wrong scrubs or well, they just weren't stylish enough. I guess you know you just your scrubs. They're cedar style. scrubs. They're cedar <laughs> scrubs. They're too stylish. Okay. Too stylish. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were just a different color, and uh, you know that that didn't go well. I don't, I, I can't explain it. I, you know, it's just it, it's petty. I can explain it. It's pettiness. Yeah, they're looking for reasons. It's called gunny sacking. People can look it up. It's how you 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 if you want to get rid of somebody who you, who hasn't really done anything wrong, you find a bunch of little things mm -hmm. and you start building a file on them. It's done with sham peer review all the time, mm -hmm. and anybody who's gone through this will know exactly what I'm talking about. And you and midwives who are now being persecuted by by the doctors in their community and stuff will say, well, but I've never had a bad outcome or anything wrong. Yeah, but you know, you didn't chart this thing properly or you, you know, you did this and maybe, you know, she was 41, 42 weeks in one hour and you didn't transfer her in or, 
they'll just find little things. And so that's what happened. So um, I, I had a choice of fighting them legally, which is a very big mistake to fight a big hospital legally or uh, leaving. Mm -hmm. um, and if I would fight them legally and I would miraculously somehow win, all I would win was the right to stay at an institution that was going to be looking to get us anyway. So um, I had some very smart advisors and some very good midwife friends, and they said, come to a home birth. And even after 20, 24 years in practice and in, no, 25 years, 26 years in practice and 15 years working with midwives, I was still reluctant, you know, collaborating with midwives. I was still reluctant to go and be at a home birth. But I ended up going and because um, I had several people that were due after the day that I was no longer going to have privileges at the hospital. And they decided they wanted me to come to the uh, home birth with them, do a home birth with them. So I did. And fortunately, they were all just, the, the you know, the first 10 or 15 that I did were unbelievably great. I can't imagine what things would have turned out if, you know, the first one had been one of these tough ones that we get sometimes. <laughs> um, and so the rest is just history. And then I... I became bolder as I went along and I began to wonder, well, why can't I do breaches? Mm -hmm. Why can't I do twins? And so I started to to take those on because they had no choices yep. in the hospital. The hospital wasn't honoring, you know, the hospital will follow ACOG's guidelines about like vaccines and stuff like that. But ACOG has guidelines that said breach delivery is quite reasonable. VBAC delivery is totally reasonable. Twin delivery is totally reasonable vaginally. And they'll ignore those because they, they as cognitive dissonance, Mm -hmm. They'll cherry pick their data and ignore data. And anybody who does things they don't like, then they ridicule you. That's the, that's exactly what we've seen in the last two years. Yeah. Everybody should be aware of the fact that people who said that hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin are an alter, a good alternative choice were vilif vilified, mm -hmm. right? They but it, but it actually works. Mm -hmm. Now they want to give you Paxlovid which doesn't work and has rebound effect. And they want to make it so that you can get it without doctor's advice to fight the fact that it has over 120 drug interactions and it happens to be made by Pfizer. Mm -hmm. So isn't this ironic? Pfizer's vaccine isn't working. So use Pfizer's COVID medicine to, to help you recover from the COVID you got because the vaccine you took four times didn't work. Trust them this time. Trust, trust them. Me. It's fine. Trust. We figured it out. Yes. <laughs> Scientists say... Expert experts say, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, it reminds me of an old John Candy skit on Second City TV. But I, I, I digress. <laughs> well, you know, so you decided to start working in the home setting, and you said that you know you got a little bolder. You were like, okay, well, why can't I do twin births? Why can't we do breech births here? Um, you know, those are high risk, you know, that's the label, high risk. And that brings me to the question of what, is there anything wrong with this labeling? You know, is there anything wrong with the way we label high and low? Yeah, calling a woman high risk makes her high risk, hmm. just by definition. So if somebody wants to either make themselves feel good or find a reason to send someone to an MFM and or if MFM wants to propagate their power, by saying to somebody, oh, we this 20-week ultrasound, it was perfect, but there was this little echogenic focus in the heart, which doesn't really mean anything, but I want to see you back in six weeks. Well, if it doesn't really mean anything, why do you want to see me back in six weeks? And what is the woman thinking about for six weeks? Mm -hmm. She's thinking about her, something wrong with her baby. That's what she's thinking because that's the way the human mind works. It's like in the movie Inception when they tell you don't think about elephants. 
So you immediately start thinking about elephants. You can't not think about it. So the way they do things is to sort of plant seeds of doubt from the very beginning and label you high risk. And then they all, it's called groupthink. They all think the same way. Like, here's a question. When I was a resident, a diabetic type one was somebody that we thought should be have an amniocentesis at 37 weeks to be sure the baby's lungs were mature and then be induced afterwards because of the risk of stillbirth was, was high. Mm-hmm. Okay. Never did I ask the question, how high? Yeah. <laughs> or, or is this, does this apply to diabetics who are well-controlled or diabetics who are not well-controlled? It was diabetic, amniocentesis, induction, no questions asked. Mm-hmm. Well, flash to 2022 anybody who's a type 1 diabetic now who's getting treatment you know they have inserts inside of them they can look at their phone and immediately know what their blood sugar is in real time and if it's high they can push a little button and give themselves insulin it's not like they have to take out a shot and draw stuff up or we have to hang an insulin drip when they're in labor yet diabetic type 1 diabetic is still considered like really high risk and they have to deliver in the hospital because if their sugars are high, that could be a problem for them. And then their babies will come out and the babies will be hypoglycemic and get jittery and have a seizure or some other problem. So we have to bring them in the hospital and we have to deliver them in a controlled situation um, by giving them an induction. No consideration, by the way, that there's any downside to an induction. No consideration to them that the baby will, by standard protocol in most hospitals, if they're an infant of a diabetic mother, will have to be separated from skin to skin from the mother and go to the NICU even though there's no better way to regulate a baby's temperature, blood sugar, breathing, uh, and well-being than being skin to skin with its mom. All right, we're going to take, we're going to not do that. We're going to send the baby to the NICU. And then if the baby's blood sugar is low, we're going to give the baby some uh, formula. All right, because uh, mother doesn't make milk yet. She's only got colostrum. Well, if a woman is well-controlled with her diabetes, why does she have to have that sort of labor? Why does she have to that sort of birth experience? So we've started to do some type one diabetics at home. I think I've done four or five and, and they've all been, been great. And we all we're prepared. Um, <clears throat> no, if there were, for some reason, the sugars were to go out of control, then we'd get them in a car and drive them to the hospital. But it's never going to happen when you have this instantaneous feedback that you have. And these people have been well controlled through their pregnancy and their diets and their hemoglobin A1Cs are probably better than yours and mine. Right. Um, and then the baby comes out. And so we, we're prepared for that while we have frozen donor milk in the freezer and we do what's called supplemental nursing system. When the baby latches on mom, we take a tiny little catheter and we slip it inside the mouth. And as the baby's sucking away on getting mom's colostrum, which couldn't be better for it and being skin to skin, we're just giving a, with a little syringe. We're just slowly adding in a little bit of milk. So the baby's getting enough calories to keep its blood sugar up for the first couple of days until mom mom's high blood sugar levels and stuff or if they were high were not a factor but we we haven't seen a single problem with either of these babies again our numbers are small they don't reach statistical significance but it's just thinking out of the box the same thing goes with hypertension if a woman has hypertension but not preeclampsia just hypertension and maybe she's on labetalol or she's on aldomet or she's on some other medication why does that mean she has to have a hospital birth why does that mean she needs to be induced mm-hmm. If people trust the biophysical profile to imply that the baby is fine, then if the baby's fine at 38 or 39 weeks with the testing you're doing, then why do you have to induce the baby? Why can't you wait three more days and test her again and wait and let her go into labor? Because there's nature isn't stupid. Nature does things for a reason. Sometimes it makes a mistake, but most of the time 
maybe there's a reason that we want that babies do better if they pick their own birthday and they're ready to come and and maybe that's better for mom and maybe that's better for baby maybe that's better for mom's future babies we don't really know because nobody cares to look because there's no money and and, and there's no power in non-intervention right and everything that's happening these days you can see is about money and power it's not about what's better for us yep um, and that's been true in my profession for a really long time i just began noticing it you know slow in the probably in the early 90s when i started to see things differently I mean, so are you trying to tell me that maybe the woman should be the one who <laughs> who decides her risk tolerance? That's that sounds crazy to me. That would be a better way of putting what I just said. I, I like yours better. It's shorter. <laughs> no. Yeah, the, the 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 whole ethics of of informed consent implies that our job is to give honest, unbiased informed consent. And I will be tr truthful and say that no one can give unbiased informed consent. It's not possible. We're not robots. Um, we're going to have a bias, even in the tone of our voice or the facial expressions we make as we're talking. So we all have bias. But to give women information and then let them choose the path they want to take. And even if that path isn't the, the path the doctor would want them to take, we have an ethical obligation to support our clients in doing that. And if we can't support our clients in doing that, then our ethical obligation is not to tell them they're idiots and they're going to kill their baby. The obligation is to say, listen, I'm, I understand that that's a choice for yours. I'm not comfortable with that choice, mm -hmm. but I know that crazy home birth doctor over there in, in Los Angeles, he's, he, he might be comfortable with your choice. Why don't you go have a consult with that person? That's pretty ethical. Unless it's the last minute, you can't dump somebody the last minute, but if you have time and these are things that should be discovered early in the, in your prenatal care, whether there's a compatibility there with your doctor or not. Sometimes people hide it. They call it the bait and switch. Mm -hmm. Like I'm pro VBAC or I'm pro twins, but you know, then they find out that the twins can only come out if they're head down, head down. And, and uh, you know, or I do breech delivery. Oh, but your baby's not in the right breech position. So they find a reason not to do breech delivery. And you have to have an epidural and it has to be in the OR. And you have to be on your back and you can't eat because you might need a C-section. <laughs> You know, that whole thing too is we, so we were talking about it at the conference yesterday is like somebody said, which I've heard a, a, a lot before is like, we, well, what, if she needs surgery, she, we can't give her food because she might need surgery. Well, what happens to the guy who comes into the ER with a gunshot wound that he got while, while he was eating dinner at the Italian restaurant, you know, can't touch him. Sorry. <laughs> to, create, to, create a, to, to create a stereotype. Are we going to wait, you know, we're going to wait eight hours, uh, you know, while they're bleeding to death, no, we're going to take them to surgery. You can you can manage that. That's what anesthesiologists learn when they're in their training. Mm -hmm. They learn all thing all things anesthetic, so they should be able to manage that. The idea that you're going to starve a woman who's running a personal marathon, uh, you know, I think everybody listening knows that, that how stupid that is, and yet many hospitals still have that policy. Oh, here you go. Here, here's a popsicle. Enjoy yourself. Right. Yeah, that's so obnoxious. Well, and let's talk about with midwives. So, you know, we've talked about the fact that midwives are skilled. They have uh, oftentimes, I mean, w they have phenomenal outcomes. So they're being barred uh, legislature wise from uh, participating in breech birth or twin birth. What options do we have then if, if the people that we think should be able to do this can't? Well, there are there are there are 
legal options, there are legal options, and then there are illegal options. Mm -hmm. um, legally, we the only thing that we can do is fight in your state capitals. And unfortunately, midwives are not organized. They don't have a big lobby. They don't have a lot of money. The people that your legis the legislatures in your state capitals, I don't mean this with disrespect. Well, maybe a little bit, but but they don't know anything. Um, they really they really don't know anything on on most topics that they decide our fate on. Mm -hmm. What they do is they rely on their interns and they rely on lobbyists. And people who lobby have a vested interest, not necessarily in the welfare of the people they're you know they're supposed to represent, but in the profit for their company or their industry. So um, it's going to be very hard to get your legislature to change the idea about 42 weeks or breach or twins or any of those sorts of things when they're getting all their advice from the MFMs at the major university in your state. Right. And that's the only people that they seek advice from. Um, and, and, and we as a group can't buy them anything. We can't send them on nice junkets or take them golfing or anything like that because we don't have that kind of money. And it's amazing how easily these people are, are influenced by that silly stuff um so that's very difficult but it's a it's a process that probably should continue and i have the most respect for people that can do that i cannot live in that world i mean i just like i said earlier i just don't abide stupid very well and it's very hard for me to sit there and watch things that could be done in five minutes take five years Right. I remember as a resident when something like the microscope broke in labor and delivery, it took us eight months to get a new microscope because they had to go through different committees and get different bids and the committees only met once a month and that sort of thing. And then eventually they figured out they should take the microscope away from us because if we're doing our own smears and we're looking at our own urines, then the lab can't charge for that. And so they actually ended up did taking away our stuff. We had a hematocrit spinner. They took that away. We had a DNC machine in the emergency room. So a woman came in with an incomplete miscarriage. We could just get them in and out in 15 minutes. Um, but they realized that that's uncaptured revenue by bringing them up to the OR. And so they took away the DNC machine. Again, all these things are not for the betterment of the client. They think, oh, it's safety. Safety is a canard. Safety is always used as a hammer and a canard. It's like a parent saying, you know, don't do that you know don't don't go outside and play or don't you know whatever and be, and they'll use safety you know or the, the or the famous quote because i said so but, um so i lost track of where we were what, where i was going what was the original question because i i got yeah so we were just talking about the fact that you know midwives what do we do in this oh, the legal stuff right so then there's the illegal stuff which is do it anyway mm -hmm. Um, or give up your license and practice as an unlicensed person. And that's always risky because you have to make a living and you don't want to go to jail or deal with that sort of thing. So, you know, ultimately we all hear stories about midwives who sometimes they have a bad outcome and they get persecuted, but sometimes they're just doing something that's sort of outside their license. They get investigated and you're always held to the standard of your highest license. So if you're a licensed midwife and you choose to do some breaches as an unlicensed midwife, the licensing board can still come after you. So you've got to figure that out, what you want to do. Clients always have the opportunity, not always easy to go across state lines. 
Uh, there are states where midwives can do breaches. I know Tennessee is one. I know Arizona is one. Um, so uh, you can go across state lines. And then there's this thing which I don't know enough about, but it's used in many industries called the Private Membership Association or a PMA, and people can look it up. And it tends to be, it's like it's like joining a club and you, you your clients can join a club and something with the constitution that says that the government has no, cannot regulate what goes on in your club. And I'm, this is very, very vague. And don't quote me on any of this stuff as being accurate because I don't know, but I have uh, lots of people I know are looking into it, mm -hmm. into these sorts of things. And they use them for other industries as well. Uh, and sometimes they hold up legally and sometimes they don't hold up legally. But that's where we might have to go because it's going to be almost impossible to change state legislatures and these rules because they're advised by people who are fearful mm -hmm. and or or just want control. Mm -hmm. And so they're never going to suddenly say, well, we don't do breaches, but we think it's OK for midwives to do breaches at home. Yeah. They're just not going to say that. And their buddies who they play golf with, who happen to be your state senators and your state representatives are are going to um, listen to them. Right. So the system is broken. Uh, ultimately, if we could get, a, you know, we get women's movement, we get them riled up about the uh, Dobbs decision, we get them riled up about, you know, other issues. But for some reason, birthing is one of those issues that just doesn't ever get people motivated. And it's so important. No family is untouched by birthing. Yep. So you'd think that this would be something where women would rise up and demand this but for whatever reason it's I, I know partly it's because pregnant women feel vulnerable and after they have a baby they're too busy um dealing with it but you know we could get some high profile uh women and again not that they're any more important than anybody else but the truth is the truth and they can get media attention so you get some actresses or some politicians or high profile um women to come out and, and start a movement and, and start marching on the Capitol, not, you know, with certain weird hats on your head or, you know, signs about this, that, the other thing, or transgendered bathrooms. But you talk, you get on a march and you talk about birth freedom mm -hmm. and free my midwife, mm -hmm. allow us to make decisions. You know, there are states that allow women to do anything they want at home, but that if a licensed person who's knowledgeable comes to help them that that's a crime yeah and that to me is like that's insane mm -hmm. that tells me that the the legislatures of that state don't have the courage to take these rights away from women so they do what's called a de facto ban they say oh you can you can have a home birth you just can't have anybody there to help you it's insane yeah well it is insane i mean but is anybody surprised right that insanity seems to be the rule of the day mm -hmm. because if they haven't unless you've been sleeping the last two years you've seen medical tyranny at its worst and this has been going on for uh you know 100 well 100 years in our, in my well more than 100 years in my profession but 100 years in the vaccine the vaccine um world mm -hmm. you know i read this book dissolving illusions i'd recommend that all of your listeners read it um everything that's happening today with the vaccine issue uh it's not new. It's all happened before. They act like they've shocked. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. There's gambling going on in here. No, it's it's it it 
I, I use movie references all the time. That's from Casablanca for people that that um, don't remember that movie. By the way, one of the greatest movies ever made. So you should people should watch Casablanca. Um, but uh, you can't be surprised that these things are happening now. This antibody dependent enhancement or original antigenic sin or the fact that the vaccines are leaky or that viruses mutate and stuff. We, we, we've, we've known all that for a hundred years. We've known all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it doesn't matter. They, they act surprised and they're just putting out a product uh, without testing, without liability that they're mandating on everybody. I mean, what a great marketing scheme. Mm -hmm. Well, and kind Maybe of we could do that for pregnancy. Maybe we could just mandate that every pregnant woman has to have a home birth and has to have a midwife. Right. Yeah, well, the idea of, you know, well, I'm shocked that there's so men so much mental illness. I'm shocked that there's so much dissociation. I'm shocked when we're disconnecting mothers and babies from the very start, when we're setting everybody up for, you know, failure, when when the the main thing, like the mainstream is, you have your baby, I'm going to cut this cord, I'm going to take your baby away from you, and you can see it later. I mean, that is setting us up for so much trouble and has been. Oh, I just read something on a podcast that's coming out in a week or two about from a letter from a woman who said that uh, she came in with to have babies with, with her twins and she tested positive for COVID. So she wasn't sick. She just mm -hmm. routinely, they test everybody that comes in. She tested positive. They took her twins and transferred them to another hospital and they're not going to allow her to see her twins until she tests negative for 10 days. What like based off of what is my question? Like you know, that's where that's where you go to a army surplus store, you buy a tank, you take the tank, you drive into the hospital through the lobby up to the nursery, point the gun at the neonatologist and say, Give me my effing babies yeah. and and get out of my way. I I uh, just can't believe the tyranny. You know, I really can't believe people. Well, there's no lot. There's no lot. There's no medical logic behind it. Babies don't get sick from COVID, right? And especially they don't get sick from COVID from a woman who tests positive for COVID who isn't sick, mm -hmm. right? And but this is better for the babies. I mean, every COVID policy they had couldn't have possibly been more wrong. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everything they did. Look at. I said this from the beginning. I say it when I'm about labor, the, from the moment you get in your car, the moment you drive home, blah, 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 everything's wrong. Yeah, from the moment they said, we're gonna lock down 15 days to slow the spread, they everything they've done since is wrong. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. And it's coming out slowly but surely that those of us who were who knew they were wrong, that the lockdowns were evil, that the that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and zinc and azithromycin and um Cursetin and all those things did have some really good preventative effects from keeping people going to the hospital. That the vaccines were never going to be the answer. That um, you know that healthy people should stay healthy. You should get outside. You should get in the sun. You should exercise. You know, keeping liquor stores open, closing gyms. What was that all about? All right, that wasn't even. That's not even wrong. That's evil. That's right. that's an evil plot, because. There's no way that liquor stores are essential and gyms are not. Mm -hmm. And seeing your grandma's and, unsafe. Yeah, and letting your grandparents die, not giving the grandparents the choice to say, listen, I'd rather see my grandchildren take the chance of dying. Oh, no, you don't have that choice. Right. Again, that's another point. That's why we all need a surplus tank, because I would have taken my tank and I would have busted down the doors of the nursing home, too, and gotten grandma out of there in the tank, you know, with my buddies and hauled ass out of there and right. I mean, that's that's 
I can't imagine people just meekly standing by watching their parents die yeah. or their friends die alone and and just standing there doing nothing like fortunately for me i didn't i didn't really have anybody close that i lost because of covid but i don't know what i would have done if my parents had still been alive mm -hmm. <laughs> during this period of time and one of them had been locked up i don't think that that would have sat well with me pretty well, sure and i wonder how much of you know our learned powerlessness from all the way from birth is affecting how we are managing the situation and the decisions that we're making or lack thereof. Well, yeah, and that and the uh, the war on masculinity uh, as well. And then, you know, who knows about what's in the water and all the things that maybe are lowering our testosterone levels and decreasing your fertility levels. And you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I, you know, you could drive yourself nuts trying to figure it all out. I mean, I still drink tap water and I've got friends who get appalled that I drink tap water. Um, you know, I mean, I buy bottled water when I'm hiking and stuff like that. But if I'm at a place where I have to drink tap water, I drink tap water. But I have friends who won't ever drink tap water. I have friends who drink, eat purely organic. But then you have to wonder, if you're eating purely organic, is it really organic? How do you know it's really organic? How do you know it doesn't have uh, um, glyphos glyphosate? Yeah, glyphosate. Glyphosate, thank you. Glyphosate in it. Um, I mean, like bees and stuff, they don't know boundaries. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the bee can't fly from the Roundup farm onto the organic farm. Yeah. <laughs> so, or the wind blows the whatever. So, you know, I don't really know that you're getting what you're getting. And is it that, is it that much better? Right. So I just think that everybody has to, you know, if you got to, if we can make a moral of the story here, it's to live your life. Don't trust authority, mm -hmm. but don't like be paranoid about everything. Just live your life. We're all going to get sick at some point. We're all going to die of something. Uh, but, you know, there's so many cliches in the movies. You know, I think it's from Braveheart. You know, every man dies. Does every man really live? Mm -hmm. uh, something like that. So, you know, live your life. Mm -hmm. And birthing is one of those things where you may do it once, twice, five times, 11 times, depends on the family. But, um, it's a, it's what it's a life event that you will always remember. I mean, you may not remember the names of your kids when you're old, but you'll remember the you'll, you'll remember their birth like it was yesterday. And um, we should we should treat it with much more respect than we're treating it now. And we should not surrender our autonomy um, and give up your power uh, just because the hospital has a rule or your doctor says that I won't, I I don't, I don't do things that way. Well, okay, fine. Well, you're going to do it for that way for me, or I'm leaving. And just remember that you are the client. They are the, the person that you hired. It's not the other way around. Yep. Right. And, and really remembering that this is the beginning, you know, for mothers, this is hard and it's hard to make these decisions. And it's hard sometimes to advocate for yourself and your child, but don't forget that this is the microcosm of the macrocosm, you're going to be having to make these decisions for the rest of motherhood. You're going to have to be taking care of your kids and doing what's right by your children and not the outside world again and again and again. Yeah. And if, if you have to homeschool your kids, I mean, I would never send my kids to a public school right now anyway, mm -hmm. just because of my own values, but not only because of my own values, but um, because I wouldn't want to vaccinate my kids and people say, are you anti-vax? And I would say, uh, yeah, I am. 
All right. Before the people always qualify, well, I'm anti this vaccine, but this vaccine, I I'm anti all of them now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I knowing what I know. All right. I mean, when I was a kid, there were like three vaccines. I think you got a tetanus shot, a polio shot, and I don't know, maybe two. I think I missed the smallpox era because mm. I don't have one of those things on my arm that yep. that uh, Claire has on Outlander. That that uh, <laughs> I don't know if anybody watches Outlander, <laughs> but um, uh, so I you know there were like two vaccines, and I had all the diseases. And I think you know there's evidence to support that when you get those diseases when you're young, it actually strengthens your immune system when you're old. Um, We've created, you know, we've gone from a, you know, a five, six, 12% uh, chronic illness rate in children to a 54% chronic illness rate. And we can't blame just the vaccines, but certainly they, they, they have to play a role. So, you know, I know this will probably get you a little warning put on your podcast label because we're right. talking about it, but, but uh, I, I would, I would um, take my kids out of school. I would not vaccinate my kids. I would homeschool my kids. Um, I would find a like-minded community. There are some. I know that some of my friends in Austin, Texas, um, people may know Del Bigtree uh, from the High Wire. Um, my friends Kimberly and James Vanderbeek are there. Um, my friend Mickey Willis, who who was the director of Plandemic, lives there, and they all started like a school um, where they're hiring a teacher and they're you know running their own their own school for their kids. To keep their kids out of the out of the mess that is the public schools. That's another thing people should listen to if they have time. Besides reading Atlas Shrugged and and um, watching Casablanca, they should um, they should listen to the High Wire every week. Because this is going to be the best show notes link list ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's and then listen to the Birthing Instincts podcast, of course. Oh well, obviously. Sure. Right. That's step one. Yeah. Right. Dr. Sue, I really do. I appreciate, I love the Birthing Instincts podcast. I love the way that you and Bliss are able to talk about so many different topics alongside birth and you really recognize how it is all integrated. Um, and you're able to, to pull these salient pieces across different topics. Um, so if, if you're not listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast, you guys definitely have to go check it out. But it has been such an honor to have you here. Well, thank you. And I would just add that you know, Bliss and I, um, you know, politically are sort of on on different ends of the spec. Not we're not on far ends, but we're on different ends. Yeah, we can discuss certain things, and we can disagree, and we can still love each other, and we don't end up like, you know, calling each other names or anything like that. But the there are times where you know I'll I'll be monologuing, and she'll chime in and say, you know, I disagree. Mm-hmm. I disagree. And rarely, I mean, I, I rarely disagree with her because sometimes I choose my battles of when to disagree with people. But we get but we we've really we really hit the stride. And it's, she's she's just somebody I value so greatly that I'm very fortunate to have uh, found her as a uh, podcast co-host and as a dear friend and as a colleague. We've worked together. We've done a lot of verse together. She inspired me to take this year uh sabbatical she took time off last year because she's had you know some emotional not emotional i mean she had personal life uh, trauma in her life that almost impossible to overcome Mm -hmm. and uh i watched her last year going around in her rv and i thought "Mm, this is a great thing so i took this year off and i'm very grateful to my colleague dr victoria flores who who came out of heaven to uh be able to cover my practice to keep it open while i'm while i'm figuring out my next move. I'm working on a paper with my colleague, Rick Safries, who does Breach Without Borders. We're working on a 
doing uh, summaries of all the twins I've done uh, in the last 12 years, less 11 years. And uh, Bliss and I want to write a book. And then there are people that want me to do a series of like YouTube videos or, you know, short, short videos because they're afraid that I'm going to get infirm or die. And then that's what happens is that your wisdom gets lost. Um, and so I, I, a lot of projects out there. And then, of course, I would like to start a breach teaching center. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just sort of waiting for the right state, the right situation to arise been talking with Marin Green and uh, Nathan Riley about possibly doing something in Kentucky, but it, it's it's uh, it's difficult because we know that if we start big, we're going to get attacked, and and so it's it's we're we're trying to we're trying to sort through this, but it's all going to come clear because the because we we visualize it happening. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest thing is if you visualize the birth that you want, go get it. Mm -hmm. Don't sit back passively. Work hard at it. You know, you, you, you know, people have heard this analogy before, but you, you spend time and money and effort on planning your wedding. Mm -hmm. And you would never tolerate the wrong flowers. Mm -hmm. You would never tolerate inviting people to your wedding who you didn't like. You would never tolerate wearing a dress that didn't fit. All right. But yet for your birth, everyone's you got you're letting someone else make all these decisions for you fight for your birth that you want spend some money if you have to cross state lines or drive 100 miles do it mm -hmm. all right because you'll never regret putting in the effort to get the birth that you want it may not always you know best laid plans don't always pan out but the satisfaction of your birth is so important for you going forward. Mm -hmm. I know women, I've been to ICANN meetings and I've seen moms who've had breech deliveries where the babies are coming out and they're pushed back inside and they have C-sections. And I talked to them years later and they still are, and they'll for their whole life, they'll be traumatized by something like that. Don't let that happen. You know, some sections are necessary, but most are not. Mm -hmm unnecessarians yeah. i think that that's i think i'd like to coin that if that's not a thing yet unnecessary is a thing it, 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 it is, is a thing. thing i've seen it yeah there's there's actually there was actually a website called the unnecessary <laughs> or, a, or a blog a blog called the unnecessary and you know I'll, I'll end with this this form of cognitive dissonance because this is a this sums it up really well i, I talk about this at my seminars my breach seminars but um the c-section rate in the united states is let's just say 30 percent because it's easy math and the World Health Organization, which is an organization I despise, and they've earned my they've earned that from me. But they do say that the C-section rate should be between ten and fifteen percent. So let's just say fifteen percent because it makes for really easy math. So that means that half of all the C-sections being done in the United States are unnecessary. Well, there's about one point four million C-sections done in the United States every year. So that means there's about seven hundred thousand unnecessary operations being done every year on women. If there were 700,000 unnecessary mastectomies or knee surgeries or gallbladder surgeries, not only would people be up in arms, but the insurance companies would be up in arms because they're paying for unnecessary surgery. Mm -hmm. Yet no one says a peep about 700,000 unnecessary surgeries. Mm -hmm. But here's the real kicker. Who's doing the unnecessary surgeries, right? No OB goes home at night and says to their spouse, hey, honey, guess what? I did two unnecessary C-sections today. 
No, every C-section that a doctor does is necessary, yet half are unnecessary. Right. So how do we, how do we, how do doctors deal with that? Oh, it's the other guy doing the unnecessary C-sections. Right. Not me. No, it's you. Right. And so that's classic cognitive dissonance. And when you have classic cognitive dissonance, it's very hard to, to get people to change their mind because the alternative is unthinkable to most of us that they have to now realize that for 30 years, they've been doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Like I realize that for, for a decade or more, I gave women shots to dry up their breast milk or prescribe birth control pills for 30 years, or, you know, immediately did immediate cord clamping and took babies over to warmers dressed in my full hazmat suit, um, you know, for a decade before I decided that that's crazy. So I, you know, I had to come to terms with that. And it's time for our, my brethren in OB to come to terms with the fact that your model sucks mm -hmm. and you are part of that sucking and it's time for you to fix yourself. <laughs> right. I, I couldn't say it better myself. That was fantastic. There's a, there's a meme in there someplace. I think, uh, right? Definitely. Absolutely. Maybe a few. <laughs> Dr. Sue, thank you so much for coming on the Happy Home Birth Podcast. Caitlin, thanks for having me. That was so fun. As we head into today's episode roundup, a few points really stuck out to me. Number one, 10 or so years into his career, Dr. Stu made a choice. He decided to recognize the fact that the way he'd been caring for patients did not align with the new knowledge and perspective that he was gaining. Honestly, it could have been a lot easier, a lot more comfortable for him to have stuck his head in the sand, continued down the old path of typical obstetric care, and to never have been faced with the discomfort of change. I am so grateful that he didn't do that. And number two, it's important that we listen to medical professionals who have seen how things work on the inside when they share that things are oftentimes not done for the best interest of the patient. Of course, I'm sure many of us know this, but experiential knowledge is a whole other kind of knowledge. Dr. Stu was pushed out of his hospital position and privileges because he wouldn't cow to the mainstream model. How frustrating to hear that those who do truly care for the patient are oftentimes the first ones to be removed. And finally, let's end on something to consider and meditate on. You, the mother, should be the one deciding the risks you are willing to take. Yes, it is incredible to have trusted advisors and providers, but the authority of how and where and with whom you give birth should remain in your hands. You have options. Okay, my friends, that is all that I've got for you for today. I'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Are you looking to extend the home birth support, encouragement, and education? Join us in our Facebook group, Happy Home Birth Podcast Community, and check us out on Instagram at Happy Home Birth Podcast.